we'll be looking today at the 16th and 17th verses of the first chapter of the letter of James, and I'd like to read verses 12 to 18 and then pray. James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray. Our merciful God and our Father, we stand before your word. We have learned from your servant James before we ask that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit from this letter again. We know his pastoral concern is towards those people who were tempted, who had trials and difficulties, and were dispersed away from their homes. We pray as we are uh, sojourners and pilgrims in, in this earth, uh, that you would give us grace and strength through the hearing of your word uh, to set our minds and our hearts uh, to that city that you have promised, to the crown that you have promised, to the many blessings that you have promised. We ask these mercies through Christ. Amen. By way of brief review, the, the five sections that we've looked at so far uh, were a brief introduction, well, let's say six, a brief introduction, and then God's goal in trials. And there's a, a step by step that trials are made to give you patience, and patience has a work. And the, the goal is that you would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. But then there's the danger of doubting. The person is supposed to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But James' next words are, if anyone lacks wisdom. And uh, certainly we've all been there. We lack the wisdom the most when we're in difficult trials. Because in a sense, God is taking us to a place where we've never been before. And it's necessary for us to cry out and say, Lord, help me. I've never been down this road. I've never faced these things and the way that you've brought them to me. But the danger of doubting and the result is that somebody literally becomes a double-minded person. He makes up a word, a person with two souls, two minds, and they go from this part to that, to this to that, back and forth. And it says they're like, he says they're like the sea, tossed. And they're unstable then in all their ways. Then we looked at the rich and the poor, and James says the poor are rich and the rich are poor. The rich have everything now, but if they don't have salvation, they die, they go to hell. All their worldly goods are left behind. And he says they just fade away in their doing. They just fade away in life and leave everything behind. And your goods and everything stay and you go. He says the poor, you might be poor on this earth, but you're rich in salvation. You might leave behind less, but you'll gain eternal life. Then we saw the blessing of perseverance. Blessed is the person who does endure trial because he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised. That's what the Lord has promised. He, he sets before us those promises uh, to help us as we go. And then we saw the life cycle of sin. And the last time we looked at James, uh, God does not tempt. And, and there's the birth picture. The, the seeds come from here. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. It, it carries it out, but it's, but it's all uh, uh, from us. It's not from God. God doesn't tempt. He can't tempt. And we are uh, tempted uh, in our own hearts. 
and now a text which is uh, uh, like a hinge. It relates to what went before and it relates to what uh, uh, goes ahead. And there's uh, five things. Uh, there's a command of caution. There's words of endearment. There's two synonymous expressions. There's the origin of the gifts and then a description of the giver. And then we'll have some uh, time for application, Lord willing. The command of caution is, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived about what I just said. Don't be deceived that temptation does not come from God, but it comes from you. You could go all the way back to the garden and you could see the devil flipped it, didn't he? Oh, did God really say that? Did he really say that? He knows that if you do this, you're going to be like him, and et cetera, et cetera. So James says, don't be deceived. God doesn't tempt anybody. Temptation and sin come from you. It's not your circumstances and not the pressure that you feel. It's not, well, God made me this way, so I just sin this way. No, don't be deceived. It comes from you. And don't be deceived looking forward. Every good and every perfect gift comes from God. There's, a, there's our hinge. There's a, the contrast. One writer says, Thus by false conceptions, here the whole structure of Christian faith and hope and holiness is undermined. That's what you do if you doubt God. That's what you do if you accuse him of tempting. The whole structure of your faith is undermined. In every aspect in which the thought that God tempts to sin can be presented, however modified or disguised, it is utterly impious, unspeakably dishonoring to God and destructive to the soul. But you know the devil works on us in different ways, doesn't he? You sin, he says you can't be forgiven. You sin, he says, then he puts you down further. Then you've done this over and over again. You've done this, you've done this, you've done that. You see, that's, that's those things he says, however modified or disguised it is, the devil could can uh, trick us. He, he's called the liar. He's, he's called the person that blinds the mind of the, the unbelieving. So this is just a, a negative imperative. Do not be deceived. Don't do something. Uh, the word means to lead astray, to cause, to wander, uh, to mislead, deceived, to be mistaken in one's judgment. I think there's a 39 different times Satan deceives the nations, it says. In a different way, the word is used. The, um, the Pharisees called Jesus uh, an imposter. They, they go to Pilate because they, they want to keep Jesus in the grave. And they say, when this imposter was alive, this deceiver, if we say that we have no sin, 1 John says, we deceive ourselves. In, in uh, 1 John 2, 26, he talks about those who are trying to deceive you. There's, there's people actively in John's church or in that church he's writing to that are trying to deceive the people that, that are there. Uh, people get tricked into transgressions. The idea is that, is that they, they can be, they can be uh, tricked or uh, taken over. The force of James' command underscores the, the danger of accusing God and the failure to see man as the source of the problem. It should be that we say, no, absolutely no, God can't do it, it is me. But the tendency is to listen to other voices and be led, as and be led astray. Do not be deceived, God does not tempt man to sin. Do not be deceived, it is man's own lust that gives birth to sin. Do not be deceived. The next part, God is good in all things. Do not be deceived. God's goodness never changes. Right in the letter, there's the possibility of deception. Here's the, here's the person. Here's the person who can be deceived. Prove yourself hearers, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There, there's a picture. We saw that this morning. The people that hear and do what Jesus said, they're on solid ground. James says, here's people who just hear. They're merely hearers. Well, they delude themselves. I heard a sermon tonight. Okay. What did that do? You don't, you, you don't walk 
in God's ways, you're deceiving yourself. The possibility is right there in James' letter. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, James says. Oh, I'm morally good. I don't do this. I don't do that. But you, you tongue lash somebody. You tongue lash somebody. You're a professor of Christ, but you have a way of getting in and poking in with your words on, on other people. Oh, if I say these words to my wife, I'll, I won't have to hear her for three or four days. Right? Those wicked things that come out of our mouths. Oh, if I just batter, I'll just say this. I, you know, nobody talks to me like that, so I'll give it back to them. Well, you just, you just threw away your Christian profession. He deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. What do we do with worthless things? We, we throw it out in the trash. Here, take out the trash. So the possibility of deception is there. Uh, James is, uh, he's uh, right there trying to let us know. The possibility is there. But notice, uh, notice his, his, personal, his personal plea and the, and the way he re approaches it. He says, my beloved brethren. Do you, do you think about that sometimes? It's one of our applications. You are beloved by God. Every, every true believer is beloved by God. Their special love from God has come to those believers in, the, in their salvation. We are objects of deep affection and care. It's used in the scripture, and, and the usage is rich. You think of so, Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon historically has been about Jesus and the church. And Jesus loves the church and he loves his people. Or it's been about two lovers, uh, Solomon and his, his lover. In, in that sense, she's at home and she just can't wait. Is that him? Do I hear him by the door? Do I hear him moving? Is he coming? Is he going to be there? She can't wait. The church and Christ can't wait. To get back together. The end of Revelation says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The church in Jesus Christ can't wait till that final marriage. That, that final thing where every Christian is presented spotless. Beloved. Speaking of the tribe of Benjamin, God says, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him. In the New Testament, the term expands and it's used the words Beloved is used over 60 times. Christ is called the beloved son. Christians are called beloved by God and beloved by the Lord by Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, and 2 Thessalonians also. Christians are called beloved by the, all the New Testament writers. Every New Testament writer, including Paul, uh, John 10 times, Peter, James, and Jude, Jude uses it four times as he's got a He's got a one-chapter letter, and he says, Beloved, four times. In 1 John 4, 1, John is trying to protect his people, and he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Don't believe everything you hear, he says. Be careful. Beloved. John was the beloved disciple, and he turned to people and said, They're beloved. James says, I might not know you. You're dispersed. This letter is going to people I never know, but you are beloved. You're beloved by God. And we need to think about that because if we're truly believers, we're beloved. Oh, you say, well, you know, my father, he was a rough sort. You didn't talk. No, you, you, you got the wrong father. You, you, you find your father in the scriptures, not in the living room. You find him in the scripture, not in the kitchen. You find him in the scripture, not drunk or anything else like that. You, you, go to, you go to God the Father in heaven and you see he has beloved people and he does loving acts towards people. Beloved brethren. And there's the second idea. I love you because you're my brothers. Which one of us wouldn't say that? We, we've... Learn to, to love one another. Christians are supposed to love one another. We call each other brother. It's an endearing term. And, and, and James says, don't be deceived. 
beloved brethren. You're beloved by God, but you're my brethren because you're in Christ. You're my, you're my brothers and sisters because we, we share those same beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, the New Testament is, is filled with this term. We're beloved, but we're also brethren. Now, as we move from the passage, several writers try to underscore this. And one says, the tone of every life is given by the idea that is entertained of God. In other words, your life is the sum of the thoughts you think of God. Oh, I, don't, I don't really think about him that much. Well, that's the sum of your life. So if my tone is, well, God tempts and, and I can't get out of it and it's his providence and he's all over this, that, that's going to that's gonna set the tone of your life. As a musical instrument is, is made or tuned for a certain sound, so our lives carry a tune, you might say. They, they press a key, bomb, 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 and, and he, hits the, he hits the cello, dun, 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 dun. oh, sounds good. But what if it goes, dun, 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 eh, 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 eh. you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Well, that's the tone of your life if you think God tempts. That's the tone of your life if you think that God is not good in all ways. That's the tone of your life if you're not beloved. It's dun, 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 eh, eh, eh. It can't be put together. One commentator says, this cure, this what James is going to say, say now is designed for the complete rejection of temptation coming from God. It's, de it's designed in a sense to say, that's it. I'm never going to think that God tempts me again because I'm going to think about his goodness from now on. I'm going to leave this behind so that the whole tone of my life and that everything just rejects the idea that God tempts me, and that's my problem. My problem comes from here, not from there. Complete rejection. And it's, it, it's underscored with James' antidote. So as we look at the antidote, verse 17, we see this is our third point, the two synonymous expressions every good thing given, and every perfect gift. Uh, there's an all-inclusive nature. Notice, every is in both uh, expressions. It's the same word, but it's important. Every, all, it's inclusive, all possible. The idea comes across clearly if we say, each good gift with no exceptions, and each perfect gift with no exceptions. The double-minded man thinks there's exceptions. The person that thinks that God is tempting him goes back and forth and says, well, it's God's fault. No, uh, no, the, the issue is not settled. But James underscores it and says, no, every, every, without exception. And then the idea of gift. Now, there's many words for gift, but these words are only used twice in the New Testament, the one means gift or giving, and it's also used in Philippians 4.15. Uh, uh, they shared with him in the matter of giving. And the other one is used only uh, twice as well, even though there's other passages that have a different word uh, for gift. Uh, it, it's hard to determine some of the nuances. The, uh, we'll talk about that. Even Barnes says it's not easy to mark accurately the, the difference of the, of the words. But if you remember, we just said every, every. Then in a sense, what does it matter? Every good gift, every perfect gift. What other kinds of gifts are there if they're both every? Every. Everything. Without exception. Every good gift, everything given, everything that comes. The New American Standard uh, uh, tries to ch change it a little bit, and it, it does well because it, the first thing is everything given and every good, perfect gift. So there's a thing given and a gift, and you say, well, what's the difference between a thing given and a gift? But remember, every goes with both. Everything given, every perfect gift. 
every good gift and every perfect gift is the, the way the ESV and the New, New King James handle it. Uh, the idea of a, a thing given also uh, lends itself more to the, the passive sense of, of the words. What does, what does God give? People were recently saying, well, this is bad. I'm being pressed down. I must be tempted by God. And James is, is going against that. He says, no. God doesn't tempt anybody, but it's also impossible because it's only good gifts and perfect gifts that come from God. Everything you possibly could have is given by God. Gill says, whether of nature, providence, or grace, and especially the latter of grace, spiritual gifts given along with Christ. It's everything. And then the, there's a definition of the, the every kind of gift, everything given. The one is good. Every good thing given. And the second is the word perfect. And we saw that in uh, verse 25 and verse 4. You'll be perfect and complete. That's the word. And verse 25 calls the, the scriptures the perfect law of liberty. We, we just went through the, the holiday season and people have different reactions uh, to gifts. But every gift that God gives is, is perfect. Somebody might open a gift and say, oh, right? I do that. I seem to get the same thing all the time. But somebody else might say, this gift is perfect. Well, that, that's the kind of gifts that God gives. <coughs> you, 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 you would look and you would say, Lord, th this is exactly what I need. But it's every good gift and every perfect gift. Everything is good. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now you see the contrast, don't you? Only good things come from God. Everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is good. What comes from me? Each one is led astray. All right? Remember that powerful word. It actually means to be dragged away by your own lust. Lured and tempted like a, a fisherman would throw a lure. Come on. New Testament examples of the gracious gifts of God. Matthew Henry says, Let corrupt men run into what notions they will. The truth as it is in Jesus stands thus, that God is not, cannot be the author and patronizer of anything that is evil, but must be must be acknowledged as the cause and spring of everything that is good. In using uh, other words for gift, uh, Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to get good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Do you want things that are good from God? Jesus says, you're a father or you're a parent. You, you know how to give good gifts. You know how to give those gifts that your kids say, oh, dad, thanks a lot. Mom, thanks a lot for that gift. But think if you just ask, God will give you more gifts. We are justified, Paul says, as a gift by his grace. Well, there's a good and perfect thing, isn't it? That comes from God. Salvation comes from God as a gift unexpected, undeserved, and much more than I ever, much more than I would ever understand or imagine. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul told the Corinthians, you're not lacking in any gift, any spiritual gift. Uh, they messed it up from there, but they had all these spiritual gifts. To each of us, he says in uh, Ephesians, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Everybody's been given out of this giant uh, warehouse of, of grace and mercy. And, and Jesus has dispensed grace and gifts to, to all of us. As each one has received a gift, Peter says, let's serve one another. Well, then we come to the fourth heading, the, the origin, uh, the origin of the gifts. Where 
did the gifts come from? Well, the, the, the first thing is they do, they, they come from above. They come down from above. It, it reminds us that uh, Jesus told Nicodemus that you need to be born again or born from above. This, these gifts are, from, are divine origin and they're truly divine origin. You see the remedy, temptation does not ever, ever, ever come from God, but every good gift and every perfect gift comes directly from God. It comes down from God. Impossible to come from him, everything comes from him. It comes from above. It's not from man or by the power of man. The things that are from above, they're outside of my control. Uh, James says in chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, there's, there's earthly wisdom and there's from above wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom. There's wisdom that's of a different kind. And then it comes down from the Father of lights. And this is just one of James' uh, beautiful uh, terms the father of lights. He says, father, you know who he's talking about, but it gives the indication of the place from where it comes. The gifts that he's spoken about come down from the father of lights. They are good and perfect because of their origin and they're good and perfect because of who gives them. Anything that comes from above is good, but now it comes from the father of lights. It comes from the Father, the Father of lights, a unique designation. Uh, God is frequently called the Father. You, you, you know at, at, at a point right before the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the term Father for the first time. And then after that, it's almost like he can't keep it off his lips. Father, Father, Father. The Gospel of John, over a hundred times, the Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. It just explodes. One of James' purposes in using this term is to continue that birth imagery. Where did sin come from? Where did sin come from? I am being tempted by God. Each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. Then when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Right? Has a, right? You're pregnant with sin and then it gives birth. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's the life cycle. But where does all the good stuff come from? It comes from the Father of lights. Notice verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. There's birth imagery again, isn't it? He brought us forth by the exercise of his will so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There, there is nobody on the planet like Christians because they're the first fruits of the activity of God. And the, and the Father of Lights, it connects, it connects God with the, with the universe. Now you, you recognize that, that uh, uh, light and dark is a moral thing, uh, but uh, the, the lights here, I believe, are, are all the planets and all the heavens and, and all the stars and everything that, that God made. In the physical sense, God is the creator of all stars, suns, moons, constellations. Psalm, Psalm 33 says, he commanded and it stood fast. Once God put everything there, it's there. It's not going anywhere. Job, in his wrestling and in all his difficulty, said these things. Job 9, uh, the, the passage is hard to split up because uh, of the way Job said it. Job 9, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. Who fights against God? He who removes mountains and they know it not. He who overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun. There's the lights. Who does it? God does. Who commands the sun and it does not rise and seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? The father of lights does that. He controls all the lights. He controls all the stars. He controls the heavens. 
And it's amazing to me that way back then, Job is supposed to be one of the, the earliest uh, uh, books in the Bible. Those constellations are already named. But God says, right, one of the Psalms says, I name all the stars. He knows them by name. Well, you can go and pay a fee and have a star named after your grandmother, but that's different because God knows all the names of the stars. Think of our son. Think of the, think of the power. And it stays there in the exact spot. If it came too close, forget about it. They're all bent out of shape about global warming. Well, God put the atmosphere, atmosphere here first because without an atmosphere, there wouldn't be any earth. Job 38, verses 28 to 33. Here it's turned around. Here God is instructing. In Job 9, it was Job saying, who's done all these things? Here, God is telling Job. And notice, uh, notice the picture. Notice the picture of uh, fatherhood. Has the reign of father. Yeah, the father of lights. Or who has begotten the drops of dew? There's a, a begetting. From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? There's a, a whole father picture. Who brought all these things forth? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. And here come the constellations again. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? He's asking Job, you're having trouble. You're trying to think all this thing through. But can you do what I did? Can you take stars and unloose them from their path? Can you take them and move them out of their courses? You can't. Can you lead forth the Maseroth? That's probably a, a, another constellation in their season. Can you guide the bear with its children, right? The same constellation mentioned before. The stars just move and everything moves and it goes around. If you've ever been to a planetarium and seen it, you say, that's incredible. Everything moves, everything shifts, everything changes. Can you do it, Job? Can you do it? Can I do it? Can we do it? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish uh, their rule on the earth? Who, who set all this stuff up? The Psalms are filled with the Lord being able to control everything. And all good gifts and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He is the Father of lights. And then the description of the giver is amazing. Because James says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And in our introduction, we mentioned that James uses words that nobody else uses. And here he uses three words in a row that are not in the New Testament anyplace else. You remember, we said, we said, well, what happens when you come to a word that you don't know? Well, I have a list in, in my uh, study of all these words that I don't know, and I try to keep track because I, then sometimes I say, well, I think I've seen that before, and I go, I go back and, oh, yeah, there. Recently, I came across the word penny father. I didn't know what that meant, but it meant somebody who's a miser, somebody who's, but here are three words that are not used anyplace else. Uh, the emphasis in the language is that there cannot be a change in any of these things. The first word means shifting, change, a mutation or a variation. It's not often used anywhere else. In other words, a, a Greek lexicon of the New Testament will show you the uses in the New Testament and sometimes uses outside of the New Testament. The... Uh, Seed picker one, for instance. There was a whole sentence in the Greek about a guy who picked up scraps at the market. And that's how they said, well, that, that's what the Athenians meant Paul was. He just kind of picked up scraps. But this word is hardly used. And, and it's used as an astronomical technical term. Paral, paralogia is something like that. 
And the second word that's not used any place else is the word for turning. And it generally describes the movement of the heavenly bodies. And it has a specific astral meaning, that this turning of planets and shifting. And then the final one is, is the word that's shadow. And it depicts the shadow that's cast by the variation of the positions of, of an object. And we all know about that. They, they figured it out early on, right? They, the most simplest timepiece in the world, a sundial. And if you put the thing in the right place, it'll actually tell you what time it was. Because all the planets shift and all the planets turn and all the planets change from one position to another. Except it didn't, it didn't completely work out because every fall and every four years, right? We, well, we got, we got leap year. Now it's leap year. We figured it out, but every four years we get another day. The ASV translation is good. With whom can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. What is it? What is it then? It's that God is always the same. The planets that he put there have their times, have their seasons. The, I love moon shadows. Uh, my uh, room happens to be in the course of the moon, and I get the moon streaming through my blinds at, at night. I just, I just love it. It almost lights up the whole room. But sometimes it's not there because the moon's not there. The shadow's not there. It's not there. But God Almighty is always in my room. He's always present in my room, isn't he? There is no shifting shadow. There is no variation due to change. He's not a planet. He's not a sundial. He is always the same and controls all those things. We can't unlock the chains of the Pleiades and Orion. We can't move this to move that. But that's the description of the, of the giver with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, shadow due to change. The sun causes shadow one day, it's hidden behind the clouds the next. With God, there's no shadow cast by turning. Every gift he gives is good, and it's perfect, and he will always give good and perfect gifts because he cannot change. That's the point. Don't be deceived. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or change. I'm being tempted by God, but you, you're, you're far, far away from what we just said then. You're on the road of deception. We saw it's a possibility. We saw James said it's a possibility. But our ground, our ground has to be here. And we can look up at the stars at night. We can look at anything. And we can see that it's fixed and held by God. I mentioned it before in the men's meeting. One of the writers brought that up. The earth is a living picture of God's faithfulness. The way it's tilted, the axis, how it functions and everything. And it literally is a ball that hangs out in space. And God controls the whole thing by its power. It doesn't turn. It doesn't do anything unless God controls it and holds it. And he hangs it right there. And that's where it's supposed to be. And you can go to scientists and they say, well, if the earth was 10,000 miles this way, uh, we would have no polar ice caps. And if it was tilted a little bit different, we would have nothing. Because the almighty God who cannot change put it there and it stands fast. The earth does all that he intended it to do. And so do all the other planets and all the other stars. So we come to application, and I, I want you to think that, that you are beloved. I, I want you to get that underscored in your mind. God loves you. I'm not saying it cheekily like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But if you are a believer, you are beloved by God. 
You are an object of God's affection. He said of Christ, this is my beloved son. He can say of you, you're the beloved. You're the beloved. The apostles, what did they say about believers? You're God's beloved. You're God's beloved. God loves you. He saved your soul. You're beloved. You're special. You're under his care. You're beloved. The apostles mentioned it over and over again. You're beloved. Oh, yeah, but my father was a tyrant. No, you're, you're thinking of the wrong person. You're beloved by God who doesn't change. You're beloved by God who gives wisdom. You're beloved by God who, who blesses people who endure trials because he has a crown of life that he's, he, he wants to give to them. You're beloved by God. Well, I have a hard time thinking that I'm beloved. Well, there's enough passages that you can meditate on and pray in. And you can say, God, help me to see your love. Help me, my soul, to be warmed by your love. Not in doubt, not tossed into and fro, not a person with the double soul going back and forth. Somebody who just says, I'm a believer, so God loves me. I'm beloved. I'm one of the people that John talks about. I'm one of the people that Jesus talks about. I'm under apostolic and divine care as one who's beloved. Paul in uh, Romans 16, he's saying goodbye to everybody. No, that's, that's not correct. He's, he's uh, giving greetings. And he says, beloved so-and-so, beloved so-and-so, right? All those names, those, those uh, amazing Greek Roman names. My beloved friend, this beloved person, that beloved person, that's, that's, that's what you are. You could write a letter and say, beloved Jim, beloved this person, beloved that person. That's who you are. If there's anything that we can get from the text, if there's anything that can help us to not be deceived, it's to know that we're beloved by God. And all these gifts just keep coming. And they're good gifts and they're perfect gifts and God never changes. But then we need to think about uh, what God has given. And, and we just go right back to uh, Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. You see, he's the Lord. He's the father of lights. Remember, he's instructing them. You're thinking the wrong way. You, you have a, a, a sign to an unknown God. You're thinking the wrong way. But what did he do? He does not dwell at temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives what? To all men, life and breath and all things. Well, well there's a lot of good gifts. Do, do you know in that sense we're on borrowed time? We're on borrowed time. How many good gifts? Well, I've only been alive 10 years. Well, well God has given you life and breath and all things. I've only been alive for 30 years. Well, Paul says God's given you life and breath and all things. But, but we're on borrowed time if we're not thankful for those things. Life and breath and all things to every person. Okay, I can see that. Breath, yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah, life, yeah, that's pretty important. And all things. You enjoy a good meal? Where did that come from? Came from the earth. Who made the earth? You enjoy a good meal? Well, that came. Oh, I only go to Chef Philippe. Oh, well. Who gave Chef Philippe the skill? Who made him to be a better cook than other people? God did. Because God gives life and breath to all things. He gives ability and skill and everything to everybody. And notice Paul goes on, Paul goes on to say, he's made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? It started with one person. Did, 
did, did they get up to 15,000 people on the earth? And God said, boy, I don't know what I'm going to do now. There's 15,000 people I got to watch over. No, that's Paul's point. It doesn't matter if there's 20 billion people on the, world, on the earth. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. Everybody on the planet, no matter how big it gets, owes their life and breath and all things to the living God. That's, that's not even talking about grace. That's not even talking about salvation. That's talking about I wake up the, the, tomorrow and I live tomorrow another day and I take all those breaths of that day. God gave me each breath, each step. Oh, you say, what about people who are cripples? What about this? What about this? No, even them, he gives life and breath in all things. And the world expanded and grew, but he still sets the boundaries and determines the appointed times of all those nations. Well, there's a lot more nations than there was before. Yeah, but God's got that all under control. Remember that you're beloved and remember what God has done in creation. Formed the heavens and the earth and controls all men and given life and breath and all things. He's his goodness extends to creation, to providence, to grace and salvation. Uh, one old writer says, everything that is good in the world has a God stamp on it. Everything. Oh, that was a good meal. God stamp. This is a nice car. I like the way it drives. God stamp. Life and breath and all things. There's a stamp of God on that too. What a beautiful sunset. What nice weather we're having. Stamp, stamp, stamp everywhere. Everything that is good in the world has the God stamp on it. Well, well, what can we do? One of the, one of the writers called, the, called the, this section, it was in a more of a homiletical commentary where there, it's like a sermon. The sermon title was, was Cherishing Right Thoughts of God. Well, that, that's what it's all about. But cherishing right thoughts of God, I just think about it every once in a while. What are the benefits of doing that? Well, it lifts our spirits emotionally and spiritually. Thinking that someone is good towards me is much better than thinking that someone is bad. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that guy at work. I think he has it out for me. Boy, that could just grind you, right? Oh, I know. My new supervisor, I know he doesn't like me. I've felt like that sometimes. Well, a few times it's been proven. It lifts your spirits. Emotionally and spiritually, I am helped by knowing that I'm the object of God's benevolence, that all these good gifts come my way, that he gives me life and breath and all things. And, and then what happens? I, I, I settle, I'm content, but also... I worship in a different way, don't I? Oh, I don't know about God bringing me into these trials. I don't know about these temptations I face. I don't know about this. No, no. Cherish right thoughts of God. Secondly, it helps us to serve. If we've been freely given all these things, isn't it easier to serve than if we think, oh, God's some kind of taskmaster. You, you just go in your Christian life and it's just one trial after another. No, that's, that's not the idea. We serve a God who is good. As I cherish right thoughts of God, I'm helped to serve him. And finally, right thoughts of God provides a barrier to sin, and that's what we need. If God is so good and I'm tempted, part of me should say, like Joseph did, how then should I sin against God and do what's wrong? What are you talking about, Joseph? You got the woman right there. There's nobody else in the house. She grabs the guy, right? You're two seconds away from jumping into bed. What are you talking about? He had a conscience that wouldn't let him sin against God because he knew that God had brought him there. He knew he was there for a purpose. And he was a righteous and sincere person. And he said, get out of here. And his resolve was so great that he left his coat and his coat was the evidence that he uh, did what he didn't do. It, 
it provides a barrier of sin. It's the antidote. Look at God as good. See him in the right way. And build up strength to fight. Oh, here comes that temptation again. Wait a minute. I remember God's good in all things. I remember that he sustains all the heavens. He's the father of lights. And everything that he does, everything that comes down is good. Good, 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 good. All right, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin. It provides a barrier. In closing, there's one thought that is, is presented. Wrong thoughts of God make possible lives of self-indulgence and sin. Because after a while, I just give up. I just say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not living this life. There's too many temptations. Maybe as Christians, we felt like that. We think, I thought I conquered this. I thought God and I worked this out. I thought I repented of this before. But if, if you have the wrong view of God, you, you just run in the course of sin all the time. Well, I got all these excuses and the devil will be right there telling you, yeah, you do. You do. You don't want to serve a God like that. Commands, commands, commands. Rules, rules, rules. You don't want to serve. Then you have to tell the devil, wait a minute. He's good all the time. He's been good to me. I'm 70 years old. I have 70 years of life, 70 years of breath, 70 years of all things. That's a lot. It outweighs, it outweighs everything else. Wrong thoughts of God make possible lives of self-indulgence. Right thoughts of God make careful Christians. We saw that this, this morning. We walk circumspectly. The periscope goes out. And they say, I'm going to walk wisely. I'm going to watch myself because I serve a good God. The next thing, the next verse we'll see. He brought us forth by his word that we will be the first fruits of his whole creation. He's, he literally, he spoke us into existence that we would be Christians. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to be deceived. Help us not to have wrong thoughts of you. We ask that these benefits of cherishing right thoughts of you would, would be ours. Lift our spirits, Lord. Help us to serve you and provide us with a barrier to temptation and sin. In Christ's name we pray.